I'm recording. You ever have to pee like as soon as you start doing one of these and then you're stuck for an hour and a half talking about like Steely Dan where your bladder is exploding? You know, I haven't had that experience so far. I'll tell you what it is. We keep recording these at night um, and the problem really happens when I drink coffee mm-hmm. and I ain't drinking no coffee at night. So I think we're good. Oh, do you find that you uh, podcast better when you're in intestinal pain or oh, worse? I'm always in some kind of pain, aren't I? Uh, sure. Such as life. I like to have a, a brewski every now and then sometimes. Right now I'm drinking a blueberry pomegranate seltzer. That's very different than a beer. That sounds like uh, effervescent. We do what we healthy. can. Well, how you doing this week, um, Matt? I'm tired. Uh, I'm sure. The, you look tired. I'm really tired. I'm sure uh, the listeners can hear it in my voice because normally I'm just like a really bubbly, positive, optimistic person. I'm a joy to be around, and I think I'm probably a joy to listen to as well. Would you agree with that? Do I have a choice? You, <laughs> do you think your day improves after uh, listening to me talking to your ears? I'd say so. This is definitely one of the highlights of my week, and not just because I get to talk, right. but also because uh, you get to talk to me as well. You get to listen to me talk. Yeah, that's, that's how I feel about it when I open my mouth, is people are getting to listen to me talk. And, uh, and that's why we have this podcast, so I can uh, bother so more you can people. stop bugging your wife. I can stop bugging my wife. That's me on the podcast, sharing a song with something to say about it, with Finn Lear and Niagara Moon. Losing my opinion. You're listening to... Losing my opinion. I am Thomas Irwin, a.k.a. Niagara Moon. Uh, Matt Longo, a.k.a. Thin Lear. And this is a podcast where we nerd out about all kinds mm-hmm. of different music. And uh, we're each going to show each other a song, and the other person has no idea what to expect. Um, but they're, uh, they're going to make some argument and see if they can win the other person over to their side. Some stupid argument about some stupid song or album. Well, today, man, today... Uh, I have something that was very difficult to listen to in order to write this podcast. I want to talk about an album that I hope, I really, really hope that you haven't heard this before. And I know you, you're, ve- it's very annoying because like we're essentially the same person uh, when you boil us down, which ultimately makes it so most of these arguments, the other person's like, yep, uh-huh, uh-huh, yep, uh-huh. But I think this one, I don't think you've listened to it. Uh, it's widely considered the worst album of the 2010s. Okay. Uh, some say it's the worst album of all time. All right. Uh, it's been ripped to shreds from pretty much the moment of its release. Uh, I would argue that it was being ripped to shreds uh, from before it was even put out. Like from the moment it was announced, people were ripping it apart just because of who was involved. Do you have any guesses so far? Friday, Friday, gotta get no. no, okay, no, oh, no, no, no. Come on, you think I would? We'd be talking about that for thirty <laughs> minutes. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be doing that. Um, and this is the, so the, the record was released in twenty eleven. So really, it's the height of. I know we keep coming back to this on this podcast, but it was the height of blog music criticism. Uh, so this album was just like pitchfork fuel. You know what I mean? Like they they were just hitting dingers. They're just hitting home runs off negative reviews for this record and getting a ton of clicks. 
So it came out during that era. Uh, and it's a collaboration between two massive artists. I think I know and now you're no now. longer allowed to guess. Okay, you're okay. no longer allowed to guess. And I don't even want to hear you say okay. it because it's going to make me yeah. mad that you already know what it is. Uh, it's essentially kind of like a spoken word album. Yeah, it is. For the most part. Uh-huh. Uh, though I guess you could argue that most of one of these artists' albums are spoken word albums uh, entirely. So I don't want to give it away. I want you to hear this clean without preconceptions that I'm sure, Thomas, you already have in your head, but maybe the listeners don't have those preconceptions. Uh, hopefully you've never listened to this. And I just want to- I have not. You haven't. I know all about it, but I have not uh, punished myself. Same here. So so I want to kind of dig into why that is, because I know that, I, at least I, I know I'm a fan of one of these artists- like legitimately a fan and you probably are too. And it's like, why didn't we investigate? Uh, and, and I think that we should have, I'm a little unclear about what my own argument is today uh, because I've now listened to this record a bunch of times and I don't know who I am anymore. <laughs> but uh, I think the argument has something to do with like, this is easily not the worst record of the 2010s. Like there's so much worse music out here. And I'm not saying that this record is not bad. Like it is. It's it's bad. But there are some really interesting things that are happening. There's an alchemy between these two p- pretty different artists that like they kind of achieve something weirdly uh, creative sometimes. Uh, and that alone makes it better than like, you know, the majority of Chill Wave yeah. albums hey, from I the like early 2010s. Wave. Sure. Sure. But... You know what I'm saying? It's, like I got you. It's unfairly maligned, perhaps. Yes. Yeah. It takes a big swing that should be, uh, you know, given a little bit of respect. Exactly. I'm gonna I'm gonna play the opening track now, uh, and listeners will immediately disagree with everything I've just said because of what this sounds like. Okay. Here we go. Are you? Are you, and let me know. Are you really ready for this? Ready as I'm ever gonna be. Okay, you should really be ready for the way this song opens. All right, here we go. I would cut my legs and tits off when I think of Boris Karloff and Kinski in the dark of the moon. It made me dream of Nosferatu trapped on the Isle of Dr. Moreau. This is the best part of the song, oh, easily, by the way. It be lovely. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, Hetfield singing too, huh? Yep. Yeah. Uh, he's saying small town girl in case you were wondering yeah yeah can we stop now yeah 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 so for those who don't know what we're listening to, you're showing me Lou Reed and Metallica's collab called Lulu. Mm-hmm. The album cover is disgusting. Yes. And uh, so far, I got to say the audio ain't much better. It's also disgusting. Yeah. Um, so I, I, need to, I need to start here by saying, 
because I, I need to prepare a foundation for the rest of this podcast. I'm a huge Lou Reed fan. Uh, I'm from Long Island. I'm sorry. I'm from Long <laughs> Island. Uh, he's the best thing to come from there besides me and Billy Joel. Uh, the Velvet Underground are one of my favorite bands. Of course, I love I love Coney Island Baby and Transformer. Uh, I even love Berlin. Berlin's awesome. And I know that's a, it's amazing. Yeah. Yes. I'll defend Metal Machine Music as an ambient album. Uh, so I'm like more staunch than most, I think. I-, I love reading like old Lester Bangs interviews and watching him being insulting. Like I'm I'm here for the whole the whole thing. Wow. Yeah, he was uh the last great American whale. Sure. Sure. Sure, he's last the best. Great American whale. Uh how <laughs> how far do you go with his discography? Because he never stopped. He just keeps going and going. But yeah, he just kept how, how far up do you do you uh follow him? Um I probably fall away, I don't know, after the mid-80s, I probably stop. Oh, so you don't even, uh, the New York album, you don't even go that Oh, no, I do like that. I do like that record. Yeah. But I can't say that most of his 90s work, I'm not (laughs) super familiar with it. You don't like when he had the mullet and all that stuff? No. And he was wearing like really tight uh, black Mm t-shirts, showing off his guns. Carrying a gun. Uh, so he did have this desire to horrify people with sound, uh, not just imagery, like some over the top cartoonish stuff, but with the songwriting and the sonics themselves. It's like he was doing this thing from the very first Velvet Underground record where you have like Sunday morning, gorgeously lush tune right next to I'm Waiting for the Man, Femme Fatale right next to Venus and Furs, all of White Light, White Heat, Heroin. particularly Sister Ray. Heroin. people out in 66 saying it's my wife, 66, it's right. my life. Early, early on in pop music. And S- Sister Ray is to this day one of the coolest, grimiest records, uh, recordings I've ever heard. It's amazing. Uh, and it's still somehow pop. Like he could be brilliant when he wanted to offend. And I guess my first question to you, now that you've heard that horrendous song, uh, do do you think that's what he's trying to do here or are we giving him too much credit? And, and as a caveat to that, is that question maybe part of what makes Lou Reed Lou Reed where it's like, it seems like he's giving you the middle finger and it also kind of looks like he's waving, mm-hmm. you know, like, is that what's happening here? Do, do you think he's trying to offend people's sensibilities or is it just coming naturally? There came a point in Lou Reed's career where he was no longer terrifying people. You know, he got established. He became a known entity. He his, you know, you could say he was defanged, if you want to be a little uh, pretentious there. But you can only be the scary young rebel who doesn't give a fuck. You can only do that so many decades before it's just like you got to evolve or something. Like you know, if you're you're 55 and most of your days going to hotels and doing press and just being part of the establishment, man, it's like. Mm-hmm. If you really keep up with the scary rebel thing and uh, you you just become a legacy and an institution at the same time, that's that's that seems tricky and yeah. maybe gets a little underwhelming for people like me who aren't the most diehard fans all the time. And then you're just kind of like, right. well, what are we left doing here? Sure. Yeah, that's that's a really great it's a really great point. It actually leads into something I uh, want to talk about. Uh, after we listen to a song that I feel is like a, a bit better. Okay. Uh, but some, some context, I mean, Thomas already said, this is the, the Lou Reed Metallica 
uh, collab album called Lulu, which everyone hated immediately upon announcement. It seemed like people were like waiting for this to be crap. Um, and then it arrived and uh, it was not good. <laughs> it was not received well. I think it probably did more damage to Metallica than it did to Lou Reed because like Lou Reed's audience. Lou Reed's just doing his thing. There's no difference except yeah. uh, there's a different band behind him. And Metallica's Metallica, you know? Yeah, and they don't really change up for him much either. So th- so they met, Lou Reed met them at, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame concert. And the album is, it's based on a series of plays, but really who cares? How can you be <laughs> listening to the lyrics here? Uh, this was supposed to initially be an album of Metallica covering unreleased Lou Reed songs, which actually sounds uh, kind of interesting. Sounds better. But that's not what this turned into. Um, I, I think, you know, with Metallica... I don't know how many of people listening to this podcast will be Metallica fans. I, I can't say I've ever been a fan. Like there are definitely songs I, I, I think are well constructed. I recognize their, I recognize and respect their ability to evolve and keep surviving and altering their sound for new audiences, which is something that like probably a lot of their early metal fans abandoned them for. Um, it's really not for me. And for anyone who's like, oh, Matt just doesn't like heavy metal. Like, I, you know, I'm a fan of when that sound has progier elements to it, like like Mastodon. I like where heavy metal comes from, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple. Um, I do like Pantera, some Slayer. Oh, look at you. Who are you, Matt Longo? I don't even... Who am I? Such so, so mysterious, right? Uh, I, I did reveal that I'm from Long Island, though, so I sort of am <laughs> taking away some of this cred. Uh, I do love the documentary Some Kind of Monster. That's great. Yeah, I've seen that. is a hundred times... It's like Spinal Tap. Uh, yep. they're just like going to band therapy and being huge a-holes to each other uh, and saying things like my lifestyle determines my death style. Uh, Lars Ulrich talking, which is he's the worst, really there's he? just nothing. Like, he's always got a piece of gum in his mouth. That's just fantastic. Uh, it's just so grating. Uh, I would recommend watching that, that you film. You don't have to be a Metallica fan to enjoy that movie, some kind of monster. You really don't. Yeah, I have... Uh, my friends and I, we will send each other like quotes from that movie. It's just fantastic. But... Going back to the record, that song is not a great representation of what this album is. It's the opening track, and I feel it's the most like sonically and lyrically offensive thing oh. on the whole album. Okay. Uh, it seems like a very Lou Reed thing to start with that song, because I do feel that it's the worst. Uh, I think that there are moments on here where they do actually come close to finding some kind of synergy between their sounds. And I'm not saying, I'm not arguing that it's amazing, but something is happening that is different and there's like an alchemy. There's potential, you're saying. Yes, exactly. It's the perfect word. I am a chorus of the voices that gather up the magnets. Me. That's not terrible, right? It's not good, but like you kind of hear what they're trying to do more. I guess. <laughs> it's just like, what did he do to get up on that stage and be their front man like what you know if somebody didn't know any better like what's this dude doing here what makes him special okay and then Hatfield starts singing and then it really it becomes a problem but and then it, yeah uh, for some reason when 
when Headfield starts singing on these songs, he sounds so, so wildly out of place, even in his own tunes. And I'm not sure why that is, maybe because you're just listening to Lou Reed, like, talk sing, and then all of a sudden... Right, you're already getting into his zone, and then you're, you're going to get whiplash. That, I think, undoes the record more than anything else. Like, this, like, where they start passing the torch back and forth. Like, if they wanted to do a straight-up spoken word record, I think it would have been better with Lou Reed just not even pretending to sing uh, and just talking over Metallica riffs, I think, would have probably been probably been the best direction yeah it's kind of like a pick a lane sort of thing like are you just reciting poetry or are you somewhat trying to carry a tune yeah right somewhat trying to carry it yeah uh it's on because he he there was a brief period and maybe i'll do an episode about this one day there was a brief period i mean early on in his (laughs) early on in lou reed's career he sang and he could sing notes and i really liked the way he did sing and I liked his weird style and affectation. And then yes. he just became determined to, to, to just talk. And sometimes it works. And then other times it does I, not. I struggle yeah. with it. Yeah. I love, I do love his singing voice, right? I mean, it, it's like, I love what, if you think about like Satellite of Love, right? Which wasn't even like early. Classic. But his, his voice on that, I, I, it's, it's very, it's lovely. And, and, you know, it cracks and stuff, and, but, it's, but it's fine. I mean, it's, it's just very sweet sounding. I understand why he, knowing him, why he probably didn't want to employ that consistently. But um, yeah, I mean, he he had a fine singing voice. It's it's unfortunately the last full album uh, Lou Reed made before he died. But maybe that's not so unfortunate because when did he ever care about how his work was received? I mean, like, yep. I was thinking about. If you compare him to a peer, because we're always, I've never, I, we haven't done a podcast on Bowie yet. I'm sure I'll get to it eventually, but I'm always talking about him. In, in a way, if you compare them, the way that he went out, you know, with Blackstar, this pristine, carefully considered new aesthetic and character, complete with, you know, new videos, video content, new style, like new character. It was like otherworldly, new, new creative door completely before he left. And then compare that with Lulu, which is like, Lou Reed doing like he did with Metal Machine Music or Berlin or whatever, where he's just pitching this wild curveball and pissing everyone off one last time and then bouncing. I think the real, the problem with what I'm hearing so far is, you know, do you think it was really just rushed and half-assed too? Like they just booked a week and they're like, eh, good enough. You know, that was, was that the the vibe of the sessions was, eh, people love it. You're doing your thing. We're doing ours good enough you know like was there just not really a vision here so much i heard the same you know be, being another uh masterful recording artist as we both are i mm. i felt the same thing where it was like i heard half finished ideas where you know like basically jamming like any musician would listen to this and be like oh this sounds like people jamming you know it, it almost sounds like someone's miking or recording space like where you go, you're hanging out with a bunch of different musicians from other bands and you guys just play it around and you come up with something like this that in the moment feels really fun. And then afterwards, if you recorded it or listened to it, you're like, oh yeah, that's completely unusable. Uh, but instead they released it as a record. I will say everyone at the time was talking about this record because we both heard of it, obviously, and didn't listen to it. But we we knew, you knew the legend, right? Of how bad it supposedly I mean, I could just start hearing the results in my head, what I meant, you know, because I don't know about the, the combination of these two. That's that's a real dice roll. And for the most part, it it kind of is that. Um, I will say there are some interesting sonic elements 
And there's one song that I actually will go to bat for. Uh, it's, a, it's a bizarrely beautiful moment. And I think a great, I think it's a great song. I mean, I, I, I know I might kind of be going out on a limb here to get cut down, but like, I'm going to listen to this song more. I'm going to listen to it again. But uh, it's the last track on the album. It's called Junior Dad, which is one of the worst song titles I've ever heard. Uh, you're killing me. <laughs> song is 19 and a half minutes long. Get out of here. Right, and we're going to listen to every second of it. No social redeeming kindness or oh, state of grace. Textures are nice, right? It's like interesting string arrangement. Now, granted, Metallica is nowhere to be found right now, so <laughs> that's why I like it. I don't know what that's saying. That like, oh, this is a great song. I love this one. Would you pull me up? But this is beautiful. I think. Would you drop the mental bullet? It sounds like what Lou Reed would have maybe yeah. been doing. Would you pull me by the arm up? The vocals aren't so bad here. Would you still kiss my lips? But the instrumentation is not, it's not what I would love to hear, but there's nothing wrong with it. You know, like it's, yeah. it goes with the track. Get the coffee. Turn the lights on. Say hello to Junior Dad. The greatest disappointment. Age yeah. withered him and changed him. The most you're going to get from me today is, eh. It's not, it's hearing that song, though. It's not like the worst thing you've heard recently. Here's what I thought when you showed me this last one. If you're going to have Lou Reed collaborate with somebody, I think you got to stick with one song per album. Mm. So basically, a little bit of him. What you're arguing oh, for ahead. is the Steven Seagal technique. Uh, to harken back to last time, uh, you're basically saying he needs to take a page out of Steven Seagal's book and do a collab album, song by song. I mean, that's not a collab album according to Steven Seagal. That's just, what is uh, it? <laughs> that's a Steven Seagal album with uh, you know supporting bandmates, but he's he's oh, okay. number one the whole way. You're not going to hear anybody else's name involved. I, I guess I misspoke. No, it's what it is. Here's what I think's going on here. I think Lou, Lou Reed doing his thing, you know, there's a lot of ways it can not land. And historically, you know, that's that's been the case. He's just, the man's released a ton of albums. You could point to a few of them and be like, ugh. Uh, he's a very particular flavor. But if you want to bring him in for one track and he does a very specific thing and he brings in, you know, some of his his better poetry, he gets into a little bit of a groove. Fine, I can see it working. I can see it pulling off. Uh, was was he in a Gorillaz song? I feel like he was on a Gorillaz. I track. don't know. I don't know that. But if he wasn't, I could see something like that potentially being a slam dunk. But a whole album of him doing something like this, I think what it was at the time with this getting so much negative attention is it just gave greater visibility to what Lou Reed had been doing like the last twenty years. And just mm-hmm. the nature of what that was is going to be so polarizing and, you know, shocking to a certain type of audience that it, and the Metallica is super big and people hate them. 
partially for the the Napster controversy. So it's just like a perfect storm of people to kind of, you know, turn your head and go, oh, what are they doing? What is this? And then, you know, it's easy pickings. It was, it, I was easy pickings. Yeah. I mean, my, my conclusion about the whole thing is like, it's bad overall, but, but I think it's entertainingly bad. And, and I think that yes. that in and of itself makes it so it can't be the worst album of the 2010s. Like That's I've an heard important distinction. A, a, many other records that were actually supposed to be good that were left made no effect on me or had no effect. And, you know, while the songs might've sounded more cohesive or less thrown together, uh, they didn't elicit any response. And like this, even a, uh, like even that it's like, I would rather watch the room over some Marvel movie that I'm not going to remember like 10 minutes after it's over. Like, uh, it's like, would you rather listen to this or like lo-fi study beats? You know, like this is inherently more interesting. Oh, I, don't you dare shit on lo-fi lo study, study beats. But I, six million hours of lo-fi study beats on Spotify. I, it's going back to that uh, that showdown between Bruce Willis and Steven Seagal. I think sure. we both favored Steven Seagal because even if it was bad, it had a it had its own identity. It had kind of its own drive. And Bruce Willis was, that was just like mindless, like doing it for the masses, middle of the road karaoke crap. Yes, I was thinking about that argument. You know, when I was listening to this, uh, and it's actually, it made me think of, you remember that show, um, Mystery Science Theater 3000? Uh, I watch Riff Tracks, but I don't think I've it's seen It's like that. that. Yeah. yeah, it's, it's th yeah. Those are the guys. Yeah. Uh, and there were some movies they did that were so bad and boring that it wasn't even funny when they made fun of it. Like it was just beating a yeah. dead horse. But when the directors and writers and actors had vision and really went for it mm -hmm. and horrifically missed the mark, there was plenty of content for them to dig That's into. That's the best stuff, right? yeah. It's just inherently watchable. And I can listen to this album and be perplexed and laugh and have my musical sensibilities offended, but it's all good because it's all a response and there's like some passion there. And ultimately, it's enjoyable. Uh, I I'm not going to be humming any of these tunes later tonight, but um, there's, there's some moments on here that are, you know, actually legitimately interesting. Um, also, Lars Ulrich thinks this record's going to explode years from now and be a cult classic. So, goes to show you that you don't know what you're talking about. Well, I think we might just disagree on the idea that this is worth giving any more attention or listens to. I, you tell me you're going to listen to this more. I'm like, I thought this guy had things going on in his life. I thought right. he was busy. Yeah. Apparently, he's just going to sit around and listen to more Lulu. Okay. Well, it really, it's just that one song and probably just that uh, three-minute yeah, section just, of just that just the 19-and-a-half-minute song. <laughs> Definitely not the whole thing. Uh, and I, I do want to confess, I did not make it through the entire uh, album because there are songs on there that are like half an hour long. Oh, God. But um, I did my best with the day that I had. <laughs> but anyway... You've yeah, that, that'll do, Matt. That'll do. <laughs> I put in the uh, work this week. Yeah, Lulu. Yeah, that's it's interesting. Imper imperfect storm going on there. That's a great way of describing it, yeah. Well, time to talk about some good music. Okay. For my segment. Uh, I'm talking about one of the all-time great artists. I'm sure you and I both feel that way. Uh, I imagine almost everybody listening to this would also agree Talking about Joni Mitchell, come on. It's time we gave her her due. We love Joni on this podcast. Uh, but the very specific point I'm going to make today, uh, it's going to be a hard sell. I really don't know if you're going to agree with me. 
Um, I don't know if anybody listening to this may end up agreeing with me. Up until this point, I feel like all my uh, all my arguments have been slam dunks, no brainers. Yep. This this one a- this one's going to be a little tougher, maybe. <laughs> okay. So you're a big Joni Mitchell fan too, right? I'm a fan. I mean, I'm I'm a fan of really the classic stuff. The classic know, run, Court, Court yeah. and Spark. You know, um, mm-hmm. Blue. You know, like, like I'm a, I'm a fan yep. of the records you're supposed to be a fan of. I can't say I like dig deep into her catalog though. I'm not. I'm no expert. That's what I'm saying. Okay. All right. So maybe a little less uh, zealous than I might have guessed. But yeah, you're familiar with with all the uh, the classic albums. She had such a great run. Um, I admit, I really. I also don't dig into much post uh, Mingus. Mm-hmm. But I mean, what you do get in the '70s is just so glorious. But uh, I'm not going to talk about any of the super famous albums in particular today. I'm actually talking about a live album. Mm. Uh, are you familiar with Miles of Isles? I've heard the name. I have not listened to it, no. Um, Miles of Isles is actually the very first Joni Mitchell album I ever listened to. Mm. Um, when I was bored out of my Gordon Middle School and just digesting a ton of music, I would order CDs from the library. Mm. And uh, so everything was free. And free and easy, and I just I picked an album that I saw that had Big Yellow Taxi and some other songs I'd heard of. Oh boy! Not realizing it was yeah. a live album. Yeah, yeah. But it's a damn good live album, uh, and apparently at the time was really successful. Uh, it's it's her and this band, the LA Express. They're excellent. They're the backup band that played on uh, Hissing of Summer Lawns and Court and Spark. Uh, Court and Spark. Probably is my favorite Joni album. Mm. It's really hard though, but um, I love Blue. I can get into Clouds even and For the Roses, but I really I do. Oh, and I love Hijira too. What am I? I love them all, but I I, I love Joni with a good rock band with a good mm. funky, limber, uh, backing arrangement. And uh, half of Miles and I Miles of Isles is with the LA Express. She plays you know a ton of her her hits up until that point. It's 1974. She's at the height of her powers. She uh, she plays Carrie. Do you know that song? You know, Blue is one of those albums for me that like I listen to it so much during a certain like uh, it's just comparison is gonna make no sense, but like okay. Nevermind or something like that, like some record that you were really into for a really specific point in time, and now oh, I'm yeah, so that. completely detached from it because I got <sighs> like everything everything I needed from it at that point in my life, and I just I, I rarely go back to it. Well, next time you're thinking about wasting your time with Lulu, maybe uh, revisit Blue instead. But I'm not here to lecture you about... Uh, I don't, there's not enough time in the day to listen to anything else besides <laughs> that record. You know, let, let's get to the point here. So Miles of Isles has a version of Carrie that was the, the first I'd ever heard of this song. Remember, this is the first album I got exposed to. Blue came later. I love Blue. I may prefer the studio versions of all the songs she does on Miles of Isles, except for Carrie. Mm. I'm going to say that the version of Carrie on Miles of Isles with the LA Express is closer to like the platonic ideal of the like best version of that song. It makes a lot more sense in my mind that they play it that way on that album than what she has on Blue. And I like the version on Blue. It's Blue is it's faultless. Mm-hmm. Oh, it, Everything on that album slaps, but there's a quality to how they interpret Carrie that I'm just like, 
this is Carrie. Mm. And it's hard for me to hear the studio version, you know, with the same amount of uh, legitimacy. So I'm going to play first the Miles of Isles version, then we're going to hear the blue version. You tell me uh, which one you think is the better version of okay. Carrie. And, and my opinion will be the final word on it, right? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. Um, and for people who don't know the song, A, you're probably a little bit bored uh, at this point, but she, she uh, had taken a break from the music industry for a little bit in 1970. She's traveling around Europe. She wants to kind of just like fuck around and hang out to get away from the pressures for a little while. Um, she's hanging out in Greece. That's where uh, the song takes place. And she's with this guy that she knows it's nothing serious and they're not going to be together for much longer, but she's having a great time in the meantime. Not a care in the world, but you know eventually you got to go back to, to home. You got to go back to serious business. But in the meantime, you're having a party. It's one of those tales. Mm. That's why I like the Miles of Isles version better because it's it's upbeat. You're going to hear in a minute. It's groovy. It's got kind of a uh, almost a reggae flavor. And uh, I think it's just like a really good interpretation of that mood. Um, the one concession I will make, the last thing I will say, is the guitar might be a little dated. If, if, you, feel, if you feel the guitar is a little too much sleazy, grindy 70s, that sounds Whatever, hot. I understand. <laughs> um, I will also say there are two moments in the song where it's like an instrumental vamp briefly. And I don't know what it is, but I love it so much. It's like one of my favorite moments in recorded music is this instrumental vamp, just mm. the, the bass and the drums and the keyboard in particular. I love it, love it, love it. And I wonder if you'll, you'll hear what I mean. So without further ado... Ringing any bells? Yeah, I mean, this uh, sounds pretty different from the version on the record. There's like a real bounce to it. A little bit of a Grateful Dead feel. <laughs> I don't mind that kind of guitar. That's tight, yeah. Are you saying the keys we're interacting with? I'm just saying that's my favorite shit ever. That, oh, that the little, little plinky. ending riff there. Yeah. I mean, just the way the combination of the bass and drum rhythm and then that. Like, if I was an old school hip hop producer, say I'm Danger Mouse making a beat. You sample it. Oh, hell yeah. Like, if I'm making a beat for MF Doom 
or I'm Jay Dilla, or I'm Kanye West in the mid-2000s before he went off the rails. Um, I'm going all in on that that little loop. I mm-hmm. wish, I, I've never heard it sampled. I, I want somebody to go forth and, and use it. Sample it. Yeah. I, lo- I love that moment. So I'm just, I'm a huge fan of that version of Carrie. That's, that, for me, that's the highlight of Miles of Isles, which is definitely a, a better than average live album. It, it, you know, one thing I'll say about it is it sounds more of that era I do like this version. It has a bounce to it, like I said, but I, I think this this version, this instrumentation is more of that era than the version that's on Blue, or, or, just, or just the instrumentation on Blue and the and the vibe of Blue in general, which I think is more uh, unique. Yeah. I mean, I love this bounce, but like you said, like oh, it's like a Grateful Dead guitar over the top. Like this sounds like a lot of live music that was coming out during that time. Uh, it's really good because the song is great and the players are great and the bounce is uh, beautiful, but I th- but I think it is it's it's more in line with what peers are doing in comparison to what's happening in the instrumentation on Blue, which is like more like I don't know. There are moments where it's like incredible string band or something like this, really elemental. Blue is timeless. Um, this what I what we just played is definitely a product of 1974. I'll definitely give you that. To which I would counter. Shut up. You know, no, no, no. Uh, like I said, it's closer to the platonic ideal in my mind of sure. the perfect version of Carrie. But what I think would have been the best move, you know, and I'm gonna, I'm Mister Know It All, take control of Joni Mitchell's career and tell her what to record where. I think this should have been one for Court and Spark over Blue. Oh, I agree a hundred percent. Yes, but let, let's listen to the version on Blue before you, okay. you fully go all in with me here. Right. Um, I didn't even remember this uh, was on the record anyway, so I <laughs> really don't think I should be listened to throughout the rest of this podcast. But yeah, when you, you said that, that makes a lot of sense. That fits in with the vibe. This version fits in with the vibe of that record. She, she might have even put it on as a live version on that album, and I think it would fit somewhere. Oh, yeah. I mean, like I said, it's the same year, it's the same band. Right. So, But let's, uh, let's listen... Finally, without further ado, if anybody who's a fan of Joni Mitchell hasn't just turned this thing off in disgust, in disgust let's, uh, let's listen to the blue version of Carrie. I mean, the dulcimer does sound great. Yeah. The wind is in from Africa. Last night I couldn't sleep. Oh, you know it sure is hard to leave here, Carrie, but it's really not my home. My fingernails are filthy I've got beach tar on my feet And I miss my clean white linen And my fancy French cologne Oh, Carrie, get out your cage This one does have the, the vocal overdub, so the harmonies Well, 
So, what do you think? Uh, hearing them side by side, that they're actually pretty drastically different. I mean, I uh-huh. yeah, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't want. You know, I know my answers to your questions are the definitive answers, and I can't go back on them. Yes. Uh, but I will say, as is as is the way with great live versions of already great recorded material it's almost like um they both need to exist oh yeah i don't want this to disappear so my answer doesn't remove one of these versions from existence it's not only one can survive no 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 i think i still dig the original but oh but but what i will say is like uh this song works because of the rest of the album like it's a great it's a great song but this arrangement works is what I mean to say because of the rest of blue. Like it is, it fits in nicely with the aesthetic and the instrumentation, the arrangements that are going on beside it. I think in a vacuum, maybe I like the other one better in a vacuum, but like this feels like it's part of Canon, like even the arrangement itself, like just a vibe of blue, which is really, there's nothing else like it just feels essential to life. If you take it out of the context of the record, maybe I like the other one more. Like if I was just not in the mood to hear Blue, because you're not always there in that place, I could listen more to the other one, I think. Even if I didn't like Mm -hmm. it more, I'd be able to listen Mm -hmm. to it more because it's just, it's an easier listen. Not that this is super challenging, but I think this has a very particular aesthetic and you're not always in that place to be like, I want to be looking at my past right now <laughs> or whatever it is that blue brings up for you. The other song doesn't elicit those same, the same depth mm-hmm. of emotion or depth of feeling, but I don't know. I don't always want yeah. to be in the place where I'm having to listen uh, to, to blue, you uh, know? So I, I think that each of them has their place. Um, and you just have to be in a particular mindset for one or the other. Well, what a diplomatic answer. Thank you. It could be a, a politician All with right, that, that circle office. logic. Uh, yes. No, I, I get what you're saying. It's If you listen to the album Blue, this is a great song from that album. And yes, the way it's done here fits in with that flow. If it was suddenly Funky Town, that would be str- strange. Um, but I guess it just goes back to this idea of, do you maybe agree with me that this song maybe should have been saved for Court and Spark and you throw another tune at, in this place instead? Maybe. I don't, I don't know that it's removal from blue would um i don't look at this song as like a key foundational element of that record i think it's a great song that fits in with the aesthetic of the rest of the album but um yeah i i when you said that i was like oh actually that could slot in so nicely uh in that track listing there uh I, i i agree with that i think that you should email joni mitchell's people and just tell her the way that she should have done this. Because if there's one thing that Joni Mitchell loves, <laughs> it's fans telling her uh, what she should have done musically. Oh, especially from 50 years ago. You're right. Yeah, no, yeah she loves such that. a hot, relevant topic to today. Right. Well, it sounds like a partial loss, I got to admit. Uh, it sounds like, <laughs> sounds like you betray me. It's a... T- uh, yeah. Fed up with this world. I guess I'm right in the middle there. But I will, Mm -hmm. I am going to, (coughs) I am going to listen to that version and probably that whole live album. I I really dug the sound of that. I don't know why I haven't listened to that record. If if nothing else, I know it sold well at the time. It got some notoriety, but I feel like we talk about great Joni album 
Oh, let's get the word order right there. We talk about great Joni Mitchell albums nowadays, and I feel like people aren't super forthcoming about Miles Files. Maybe that's just in my head, but mm-hmm. you you either got this awesome LA Express doing their thing, or when it's just Joni on her own, you're still getting Joni Mitchell at the height of her powers in a live setting. And that sounds, you know... Pretty good deal. Uh, I'm a superficial Joni Mitchell fan, so and I have never heard of Miles of Isles, so... Um, or I'd heard of it. I've never listened to it, though. So I, I think you're right in that. Um, yeah, maybe it, sh- it should be part of her classic album run. All right. Well, if I haven't uh, disgraced myself too much by now, I will say I think we can both disagree with uh, the contemporary reviewer Stephen Davis of Rolling Stone. Back when this album came out, he was he was largely positive, but it, his whole thing was. As you go through the album, it's four sides total because it's a double album. The, each side gets a little worse and worse. And so Carrie is from side four. He says, this is Stephen Davis here, side four is something of a disaster. The great lilting Carrie is murdered by the well-meaning band, which provides a cocktail ska setting for Mitchell's throwaway vocal. Excuse me? Yeah. Uh to their credit, the sprung rhythms of the original version would have been a bitch to recreate under any concert circumstance. I mean, that's true, but mm. geez, my guy. Yeah. Cocktail ska. Well, you got to give those re- reviewers, uh, you got to cut them some slack. There was so much good music coming out during that there time was, that they just had, they no, had no idea, idea what they were dealing with. Oh, we got to give something, uh, you know, a more negative review with all these classic albums that are coming out this year. You're right. You're right. Mm. Well, I like it either way. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying. Yeah, I, I think uh, also because the time you the the point you were at in your life when you heard it, I think albums that you discover in middle school that you you know that aren't like you know Limp Biscuit or something like like things that uh, you actually continue to listen to and are, are meaningful to you throughout your life. Uh, the first version you hear of something is the thing that sticks with you. Like I, I remember yeah. hearing the last waltz before I heard the rest Ooh. of the band's material. That's a damn uh, good album, though. And now you know I a lot of those uh, classic band songs. Like I go to that. You know, if I'm firing up whatever stupid streaming service I'm listening on, like I listen to those versions before studio recordings. And I don't even necessarily think that they're better, but they mean more to me because of where I was at in my life when I heard it. Yeah, yeah, I'm coming in with a lot of bias because, like I said. It's the first Joni Mitchell album I was exposed to, but I don't feel this way about any other version of whatever song that's on that album. I, I'm largely a studio album guy. I, I usually do not prefer live albums. Mm. Uh, they're not they're not my jam usually. So this is I like to think it's a special case. But <laughs> last waltz, um, I got to revisit that one when when. Levon Helms hits that high note on the night they drove Old Dixie down. I said, God was in that room. Levon Helms is the best singing drummer ever. I, I mean, who, there's no one, nobody comes close because because he could have been the front man without playing anything. His voice is so good, uh, and his drumming is yeah. unbelievable. He's an unbelievable drummer. Uh, one of the best. Yeah, yeah. Every year that passes, I appreciate the band more and more. Yeah. But uh, alrighty, well. So mixed results today, but uh, what did we learn, Matt? Uh, I kind of just want to listen to Levon Helms drums right now. Uh, <laughs> and I do want to check out this Joni Mitchell live album. 
And I, I wonder if visit her again now anyway. It feels like the time is right. It's been a while since I did another run. Um, yeah. I might listen to that uh, Lulu song again. Uh, I might not now that I think about doing it. Uh, but I will say it's just not, the whole thing is not nearly as bad as they, they made it out to be. It's just like, it, it's a it's a bad record. But they, they made it sound like it was a crime against humanity. And they've done that with Lou's work before too, though. And it never is. Well, I learned that you got a bunch of time to listen to some mediocre ass music. That's what I learned. Uh, well, I keep in mind this was happening while uh, my daughter is sleeping on my chest. So I also scare her with Metallica. I did okay. it through headphones. I did. Through, I did think All about right. this because she was already upset by Bob Dylan. So I'm not going to put yes. Lou Reed on right now. So I uh, was listening through headphones and made sure it was it was fairly quiet, so there was no bleed. Last thing I want is to wake her up with this shite music. Oh boy. Well, despite whatever we said today, this this is a new thing I wanna I wanna try out. I wanna say that uh here on this podcast we believe that the the truly most important opinion is your own. That's so whack. <laughs> uh and you know what? I said a lot of silly things today. I could be wrong now. Uh. That's good. It's like the affectation this time. I actually, I was just listening to that. Our Randy Newman episode uh, is very good. I sound like a huge nerd. So happy. <laughs> as opposed that. to today. Today where, where I totally... sounded cool as hell. Yeah, Talking about Lulu. Suave. That's right. And before we leave you for today, mm-hmm. uh, won't you please consider leaving a rating writing a review or subscribing yeah. on your platform of choice. Why not? Apple Podcasts, right? Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you got. Yeah. Uh, give us a nice little shout out. And uh, you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, Losing My Opinion. There it is. I like me an old daddy sometimes. Mamma mia!